Welcome to the Around the Keg Podcast, your one-stop shop for hot takes and cold beer. This week, Wit, Matt, and myself, Keys, discuss the results of the SEC Championship, the landscape of the college football playoff, as well as the Heisman finalists. We also open up the mailbag to answer questions sent in from our followers, and finish off the episode with our Pour One Out, Cut em Off segment. Now let's pop the tab. All right, Wit. Very sorry for you, but not for anybody else. And Keys, I'm I'm sorry for Keys as well. For everybody else, I'm not going to apologize because Alabama is once again back-to-back SEC champs. Look, Matt, I've done a lot of drinking this week, and uh, a lot through those through those uh, through the these last couple of nights of just pounding whiskey to get over my pain of this. This new Georgia loss to Alabama. I've come to one conclusion. I would never, ever, ever let myself think that Georgia is going to win a game against Alabama ever again in my life until it happens. Or at least until Nick Saban retires. I won't do it. And you know what? I promised myself that in 2000 or last season when I went to Alabama and convinced myself that Georgia was going to win that game. And uh, we got blown out in the second half after leading at halftime. So uh, from now on, you know, I went to this game it, before the season. I actually I went through. I do a early August picks. I go through and pick every single Power Five game. I pick SEC champion, Big Twelve champion, all that. I pick everything. My prediction was Georgia goes undefeated, or no, sorry, Georgia loses to Clemson, goes undefeated, gets to the national championship, is the number one team in the country, and then loses to Alabama. And I had all that set up. I came into the season thinking, don't think Georgia's going to be Alabama. Don't think Georgia's going to be Alabama. Don't think Georgia's going to be Alabama. And I thought Georgia's going to be Alabama. I was 100% convinced. We talked about it last week on the show. I picked Georgia to be Alabama. I told everybody Georgia was going to blow out Alabama. I was like, I just hope I just hope we beat them worse than I think we are. Because I, I, I was like, I think they don't even have a chance. You know, here we are again. Almost the exact same score as last year. Man, I I could not believe. I think it was the exact same score as last year. Was it forty one twenty eight last year? I think it was forty two twenty or uh, twenty four to forty two. And this year it was forty one twenty four. It was twenty four forty one. Either way, I I mean, Wit, you're not alone. I picked Georgia on this podcast as an Alabama fan because I watched that team week in and week out struggle against not, not and it wasn't even the struggles necessarily like. You know, people always, especially like whenever you look in years past, like Alabama fans have looked and been like, oh, the struggle win for Mississippi State against Kentucky or struggle win for, you know, uh, Florida against Samford. This year, Alabama was like struggling to win, but they also weren't in those games like they weren't always clearly the better team in those games, even though they were winning the struggle win games. They just didn't play with a lot of intensity, and the offensive line all season long had been such a question mark, especially the right side of the line, and you saw that a lot in the Texas A&M game. And then fast forward, so I'm, I'm thinking there's no chance that we actually have the manpower on the offensive line to stop Georgia's daunted front seven. And that front seven was quiet. 
on Saturday. It, they gave Bryce the offensive line gave Bryce Young time to look downfield to for those big routes to develop for him to hit those chunk plays to Jamison Williams and John Mechie before he got injured, and it just that was a different Alabama team than we've seen all year. And it almost felt like Bill O'Brien's been like, hey, guys, hold a little bit back. We know we can win these games, but we don't want to show our hand whenever we play Georgia because we want to be able to it, – it just – I mean, don't get me wrong. I love it. I'm here for it. But it surprised me, and I think a lot of Alabama fans have been taking it like, oh, nobody believed in us. And it's like, look, man, like I've, I talked to a lot of Alabama fans, and I think – like I gave I gave us a small chance to win. I thought that we could if we played our best game of the season, win a close game. I didn't see us blowing it out of the water. I mean, I really did not see a, I didn't see there being any way that we took it to that Georgia team like we did. Look, Matt, I have not gotten to watch the full game. I'm going to fully admit that before we start talking about it because during the game, I was at a wedding and I watched it on my phone for a little bit until Georgia was up 10 to 0 and then the wedding starts, I get to, didn't get to watch a lot of it, and my DVR on my YouTube TV has been messing up, so I've only gotten to watch about pretty much the first half, at least for the first half of the game. In my opinion, I think Georgia's front seven was fine. Alabama's offensive line has stepped up big time. They looked way better in that game than they had the rest of the season, but I don't think the issue was the fact that Georgia's front seven wasn't getting pressure or wasn't uh, physically... Not, I mean, Georgia wasn't physically dominating, but they weren't getting having success against Alabama's offensive line. I think it was the fact that Bryce Young is so good in the pocket, even when they were getting pressure, he was getting away from it. I mean, that dude is, his instincts in the pocket, like anytime there's pressure on him, it's like he knows exactly where he's supposed to go, and he knows exactly where to throw the ball. And he's he was, the quick passes were just unbelievable. I mean... To me, I've always said since Kirby's been here, the way to beat a Kirby Smart defense is quick, short passes. And then open, sorry, using quick, short passes to open up the explosive passing game. And that is exactly what Bill O'Brien drew up for Bryce Young, and Bryce Young executed it to a T. And I've been and I've been on Bill O'Brien a lot this year because I mean we got so spoiled and I know that you don't give Sarkeesian a lot of credit because you look at all the tools that he had on that offense. But it, so I, I I like the way that Sark used so many bunch formations and used a lot of motion in the backfield pre-snap uh, with those bunches in order to set rub routes and do stuff to get guys open in space. And so you were seeing guys, it looked like blown coverages a lot last year, where I think it was just the routes were so dynamically drawn up to where there was guys that were just getting free because it, it kind of forces the defense to play it perfectly and they just don't always. And Mac did such an effective job of, of seeing that. And Devontae did such a good job of getting open. So this year, I've I've been very critical of Bill O'Brien because I don't feel like he's done that enough. He hasn't been super creative. He uses the bunch formations some, um, but he likes to spread it out and get, try and get guys open in space. Like with Jamison Williams, that works. But sometimes you need those bunch formations and the rubber outs, just like you do in the NFL, to, to create a little bit more space. That was Bryce has had a phenomenal year all year. That was his most magical game, though. The way that he moved and extended plays. And for the first time this year, I feel like he was using his legs to create plays, too. And I don't mean just extend them. Like, 
whenever he ran in for the touchdown. Bryce, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, he wasn't looking to do that. And I don't even think he was looking to do that on that play, but he was more willing to do that in that game versus other games this year where I've seen him literally hold on to the ball, run around in the pocket, have open field in front of him, and still look to throw downfield. Even though he's used his legs that much, like he's not looking to run. I thought Bryce had, I mean, obviously Bryce had the best game of of the season for any quarterback uh, because, and it was not just because of the, what the numbers that he put up, but the numbers that he put up against the same defense that everybody else didn't even come close to doing anything like that with. But a big part of Bryce being able to do that was Alabama establishing the run, which they haven't been able to do a lot this year against teams like Texas A&M and LSU. The run game has been stifled. Alabama was averaging six yards a carry at one point in the fourth quarter against Georgia. They were just using the run so effectively, and they were getting four or five yards on a handoff. Brian Robinson gutted it out through an injury. I didn't think he was going to play. And so so having the run game, Georgia didn't stop it. And and that allowed there, – there was nothing that Georgia could do on that front other than – you know, try and make get to Bryce and make him move around in the pocket and make him continue to throw those short slants. Well, and that's why I always say, too, you want to start out when you're playing a Georgia defense or a Kirby Smart defense with those short, quick throws and then open up the explosive passing game. Because if you're getting those huge, explosive touchdowns like they were with Jamison Williams, it opens up the run game big time because Georgia can't put seven guys, five guys in the box, whatever. They got to pull some guys back and uh, look out for that explosive passing game. Because if Jamison Williams, if he's one-on-one with somebody, at least on Saturday, he was not going to get beat. He was going to be, if he was one-on-two with anybody, he was going to win that battle. So, I mean, it was tough to watch. Um, even though I really didn't get to watch most of it, uh, it was tough to look at my phone and see the score continually go up on Alabama's side. Uh, obviously, seven of those points came from a horrific Stetson Bennett pick six. Um, I think a lot of people are blaming him for the loss. A lot of people are saying if JT was in that game, things would have been completely different. And honestly, to me, I have was mad at Kirby for not pulling Stetson after the pick six, but I also don't think it really would have changed much. If you want my honest opinion, and I watched the whole game beginning to end. I don't. <laughs> Georgia fans are like, you know, and I've even seen some Alabama fans on, of course, this is Facebook. So they're like, oh, yeah, you know, like if y'all would put JT Daniels in there instead of says instead of Stetson Bennett, y'all would y'all would have it would have been a closer game. Outside of the pick six, he threw another pick. I have I actually have Stetson as like number reason number four. Why? Why Georgia didn't win the game? Reason number one was the the D line to me, Alabama's O line, which is the reason that Alabama won, like. Uh, Bryce won the MVP, and by far, yeah, yes, individually, he was the MVP. O-line's the MVP of that game. Alabama's O-line dominated that, that, that Georgia front in a way that Georgia hadn't experienced before this year. And Alabama hadn't played like that this year. So it was awesome to see it. They fi- it finally got out of them, got it out of them. But Georgia's defensive line was kind of the tone setter to me in that game. And them not be getting anywhere was reason number one. Number two would be blown coverages. 
um, the the on the d- defensive backs, and it's because Alabama had. Even though we don't have Devontae Smith this year, and we lost Najee Harris, and we lost Jalen Waddle, the skill players that Alabama has, like Jamison Williams and John Mechie, are still at a level that challenge the Georgia secondary. Number three for me would be that Georgia, outside of Brock Bowers, doesn't really have the skill players that match up well against the Alabama secondary. If you look at a lot of the plays that were going on, and this is why I don't think that JT would have made that big of a difference, Stetson was making the throws when they were there, but he also tried to force throws, but they were he was forcing throws because they weren't always there either. Like, there was a play, I think it was in the second quarter, and, like, he would, th- there were some passes that he underthrew, but I don't know that JT would have thrown a perfect dime either, especially since he hasn't been getting a lot of first-team reps. At least that I, I would assume he's not since he's not been starting in practice. But for me, it was like Stetson did a lot with his feet that JT can't do. And he actually extended several plays. There was the one play that he took off running. It was like a third and 15, and he almost picked up the first down. And then they ended up going for it on fourth down, and he converted it. Um, You know, we did throw the pick six. The pick six was pretty horrendous. So Stetson would be my reason number four. But the Georgia skill players don't seem to have that elite level. And I know George Pickens is just coming back from an injury. A.D., what's what's his last name? A.D.? A.D. Mitchell. A.D. Mitchell. Like, I know that he's supposed to be pretty good. But, like, Trey Burton. Lad McConkey, I think is his name. Yeah, like, it's Lad McConkey and Jermaine Burton. Jermaine Burton. I, I, I think they're they're good players. But when you talk about like secondaries that have elite cornerbacks and defensive backs, especially that have a little bit of experience, um, it, I don't think that those guys are going to win one on one matchups often. Right, and I mean, look at. The way that Georgia's played this year, too, we really haven't had many games where we've had to get the passing game going. I mean, Stetson's been good, but Stetson hasn't been blowing teams away with his passing game either. He's only throwing for like 300, or sorry, 220, 230 yards a game, something like that. But it's been because we haven't really had to use the passing game. I mean, Stetson had 340 yards. On Saturday, he threw the ball 50 times, which is probably the most, I'm pretty sure it's the most he's thrown in his entire career. Um, it's more than double than what he threw in most games this season. Uh, Georgia, one thing I really didn't like that we started doing kind of towards the end of the second half, too, was he started going away from the run game. I felt like Kirby was almost playing like we were the worst team in that game. And going into that game, we should have been playing like we were the bullies. Um, I mean, obviously, I still haven't watched the second half. I really need to go back and watch the rest of it before I kind of feel like I have a good understanding of what the hell happened. But, I'm, I mean, honestly, I'm I'm still shocked from Saturday. I did not expect for any team to put up the kind of points Alabama did against Georgia. Well, look, and, and, and I think that I, I, I'll be honest. I think that Alabama is the only team. And I actually said this. Me and Nathan were talking earlier this year. And I think it was the Kentucky game or the Auburn game, the Georgia-Auburn, Georgia-Kentucky game, one of those two games. And I was watching it, and I was like, I know we're down this year, but I feel like we kind of match up with what their defense does. And, like, for example, 
I've heard all the Jordan Davis hype, and I've seen him make some good plays. I didn't realize he was rotating in every two plays. Like, he, all, all a team has to do, and I say all, all a team has to do, Alabama did exactly what they had to do. They established the run, and they kept Georgia's defense out on the field longer than they've been out on the field all year, even on drives. And so they would drive down the field and then score a touchdown. And after that second touchdown when Alabama went up 14-10, it almost felt like Georgia got punched in the mouth and was like, what just happened? Like, we just gave up 14 points in, in the first quarter of a game? Like it just, or first half of a game, it, it just, it felt like they didn't know how to respond to that kind of thing because it hadn't happened to them all year. So the one thing I'll say about leaving that game is it never felt like it was really truly over until there were zeros on the board. Georgia felt like they were still in, at least to me as an Alabama fan, being nervous like, God, I don't want to do that thing that we've done to Georgia before where we're up big, like, yeah, I think it was 17 in the third quarter. And I was like, God, I really don't want to blow this lead and then be on the other side of like blowing a big lead in a championship game. But man, it was, it was, Alabama just played a perfect game. I don't even know what else to say, man. It was, it was awesome. I'm very excited. I'm very thrilled. All of our non Alabama fans that are listening are going to be really annoyed because I've rambled on way too long about Alabama. But I've, I was, this is one of the most satisfying SEC championships that I've watched. Alabama win because. Nobody gave us a chance. I didn't even really give us that much of a chance. I thought there was a slim chance we might win a close game. And then we won by 17. It was awesome. Yeah, it was totally awesome, Matt. It was really, really awesome. It was awesome. You know what else is awesome? There's a decent chance we could see that game again in the national championship because we got the college football playoff. Alabama's number one playing Cincinnati in what, the Cotton Bowl? And then Georgia's playing Michigan. Georgia's number three. Michigan's number two. In the Orange Bowl, once again, to me, the committee got it right. I don't see another way you can have ranked these teams. If they would have put Michigan at one and Alabama at two, I wouldn't have been too upset. But I think Alabama deserved that number one ranking after what they did to Georgia, the way that Georgia's been dominant this entire season. Uh, Cincinnati obviously deserved the number four spot over Notre Dame or a two-loss Baylor. I mean, they were undefeated. They're the only undefeated team in the country. Totally deserve it. They deserve a shot at Alabama. To me, Bama is going to beat the crap out of uh, Cincinnati. And uh, Michigan-Georgia, I think Michigan-Georgia is going to be a pretty fun game to watch as well. I've seen a lot of Michigan fans upset that they were not moved up to number one because they won 42-3 against Iowa. First of all, it's Iowa. Second of all, all the numbers and analytics lined up for Alabama to be one over Michigan. Uh, strength of record, game control. Obviously, we were the only team that beat the number one team in the country that had been the only number one team in the country since the college football playoff rankings had come out and won by 17. So it only made sense for Alabama to jump up to one. But also, I think the committee do, did this, and I was watching the, the, the rankings be revealed on Sunday, and they said... You know, somebody asked, well, did you take into consideration a rematch between Alabama and Georgia in the semifinal, and did that play into your rankings? And they said no. But I'm going to go out on a limb and disagree with that. I think that they're going to say that out loud, but had they put 
Michigan at one and Alabama at two. That would have meant that they would have moved Cincinnati up to three and put Georgia at four. And there was no way that they were going to put Cincinnati at three. And as much as they want to say no, that it didn't factor in, the matchups that we're getting this weekend is a lot better than the matchups that we would have gotten if we would have gotten Michigan-Cincinnati and Alabama-Georgia. I think Michigan-Cincinnati would be a blowout in favor of Michigan. And then Georgia-Alabama, I'm not so confident in what would happen in that game um, just because it's tough to beat a team twice. I think I said that a million times last week in championship week. So um, Alabama-Cincinnati it is, and Georgia-Michigan. Alabama-Cincinnati, I feel like it depends on what Alabama team we get. If we get the Alabama team that came out and played against Georgia on Saturday, we, we should see an old-school, good old-fashioned beatdown. Uh, Cincinnati should be put in their place pretty easily. Not having John Mechie is a little bit of a concern to me just because he is one of the only receivers on that team with some experience outside of Jamison Williams and Slade Bolden. But, um, you know, it just kind of depends on what Alabama team we get. I could also see it being a much closer game than a lot of people expect. Cincinnati kind of matches up well with what Alabama does. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. I, I, I still like Alabama in that game. And then Georgia-Michigan, I feel like, Michigan plays exactly how Georgia wants teams to play. They don't have the mobile quarterback with the extremely athletic, talented, outside skill players, a wide receiver. They've got a good running back, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I to me, that game feels like another Georgia blowout. So I'm excited to watch those games uh, on New Year's Eve, hopefully from New Orleans. Yeah, I think both these matchups are actually going to be pretty fun. Cincinnati. To me, I just don't think they're on the same level as Alabama. I think Alabama is hitting their stride at the right at the right point. Um, obviously, in that Auburn game, to me, I think the only reason that game against Auburn was close because it was in Jordan Hare, it was a big rivalry game, and Jamison Williams didn't play for pretty much the entire game. That's, in my opinion, that's the only reason that game was close. Absolutely, and we talked about that last week. Alabama, and and I, I put this on our group message last week. Whenever we were talking about. Alabama Oklahoma State matchups potentially and stuff like that. And I was like, Alabama since 2013, the kick six, including this year, has only won twice in that stadium. It's always a close game, minus last year when, which was even in, in Tuscaloosa, but it's always a close game in Jordan Air. It's a tough, it's a, for whatever reason, it has not been a nice place for Nick Saban ever. Even when he was at LSU, he struggled there. Yeah, and, and see, one of the big knocks for Alabama and the reason people thought that they shouldn't have been number one was because they had these struggle wins like against Auburn, like against LSU, um, like earlier on in the season against Florida too. Um, but my thing is, has Michigan not had those struggle wins? I mean, you look, go back and look at their schedule. They only beat Rutgers by seven. They only beat uh, Nebraska by three. Nebraska was a three-win team this season even though people want to act like they're super good because every team in the Big Ten only beat them by seven points. Maybe we should quit acting like the Big Ten's that good. And then they only beat Penn State, who's unranked too, by like four. So I, 
Michigan is a great team. Michigan's a great team. If they if they would have put Michigan at number one because of how they beat Iowa and because of their win over Ohio State, it wouldn't have bothered me. I have no issue seeing Michigan at number one. Michigan and Alabama, one or two, it really wouldn't have bothered me that much. But I think that's a bad knock to Alabama saying they they shouldn't be one because they weren't dominant all season. Because nobody was dominant all season except for Georgia. And then Georgia just got dominated by Alabama. So to me, that's why I think Alabama should have been one. Yeah, and that's you, you just said exactly what I was going to say. There hasn't been a team in the country dominate everyone that they've played this year except for Georgia. I know that there were some people out there, and, and I think it was mostly Florida and South Carolina fans who just wanted Georgia to miss the playoff. They were saying like, oh, well, Georgia lost by 17 to Alabama. Like, should they consider putting in a one-loss team or like a Notre Dame? in over over Georgia or if Oklahoma State would have won they would have gotten in over Georgia and I don't think either of those statements is true the the thing with Georgia is is they dominated everyone minus Clemson but they even dominated the Clemson game they just didn't score on Clemson but they dominated that game if you watch it now you've got you had Alabama come in there and beat Georgia but even that game like Alabama felt like it dominated a little bit in that game but Georgia was still able to move the ball a little bit. Uh, so Georgia was absolutely getting in the playoff no matter what happened this past weekend. And I wonder a little bit in my mind if maybe somewhere in the back of their minds, in the Georgia players' minds, that kind of sat there as like there was a little bit of complacency of we've already, we've already, we're already in. What does it matter? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I think that's why Kirby, I think Kirby kind of, toned it back on trying to be aggressive, like going for it on fourth down and stuff in the second half too. Um, but enough about, you know, the Georgia-Alabama game, enough about the playoff. Let's talk about some of these coaching changes from this week. Brent Venables was announced as the head coach for Oklahoma, taking over after Lincoln Riley jumped to USC. And uh, Mario Cristobal to Miami. Both of these are massive hires. Uh, to me, these were the best moves that these teams could have made in this offseason to help their programs. Matt, what do you think about those? I can't remember – a silly season in my life that ever had this many blue blood jobs open in the same year. USC, LSU, Oklahoma, Florida, it, like, it, it, and then Miami pops open. Not really. It didn't really pop open. It was kind of forced open for the right guy, but really good jobs. Notre Dame. So six, six premier Big name college program jobs coming open in the same season. Brent Venables to Oklahoma is a phenomenal hire. Um, they, this is a guy who pretty much told everyone, I'm not leaving my job as the defensive coordinator at Clemson until a program comes open or a head coaching job comes open. Then I know that I'm going to go in and be a national title contender right off the rip. He's getting that with Oklahoma. He's going to have an opportunity to go in and recruit the players to stay there, uh, which he's a great recruiter, so I'm sure that he's going to do a great job there with that. But he's also bringing Jeff Levy from Ole Miss to be his offensive coordinator. Um, I don't think it's been officially announced yet, but per uh, so, uh, uh, an, an official legit guy with Ole Miss, um, the deal's done. They're just ironing out the details right now. And Jeff Levy turned down a three-year contract extension with, worth about $2 million a year to be the OC at Ole Miss going forward. So Jeff Levy is going to be his offensive coordinator. So you're looking at an Oklahoma team that 
lost Lincoln Riley. So everyone was kind of looking at him like, oh, yeah, I mean, you're losing Lincoln Riley, who's one of the best offensive minds. You lost Malachi Nelson, 2023 commit. You lost, uh, you're probably going to lose Caleb Williams to follow Lincoln Riley to USC. And you lo- you're losing Spencer Rattler. So they add a Brent Venables, who's going to beef up that defense. And then they add a Jeff Levy, who's a phenomenal offensive mind, so the offense isn't going to miss a beat. Uh, I'll leave it at there with my take on Oklahoma. Uh, what what, what, what you thinking about it? I think this is the perfect hire for Oklahoma, especially because of the fact that they're moving to the SEC. And the SEC is known for tough defense, hard-nosed, run-first football teams besides these Crazy offenses we've had the past couple years with Alabama and with Florida from last year with Kyle Trask. Brent Venables is going to have Oklahoma playing Oklahoma football back when they were actually competing for national championships. And that's why I like the hire. I'm not 100% sold on it. I like it. This is exactly what I would have done. I think there are some question marks because we haven't seen him in a head coach before. But to me, I think this is very similar to the Kirby Smart hire at Georgia. He's got some ties to Oklahoma. He loves the University of Oklahoma. He was there forever. I think he was there from like 2005 to 2011 or something like that. And he's the best defensive mind in college football besides Kirby Smart, in my opinion. He's had incredible defenses with Clemson. Absolutely dominant. Even this season, with all the injuries they've had and all the struggles they've had on offense, they still have had an unbelievable defense. So I think he's going to get Oklahoma playing the type of football that Oklahoma fans want to see that Lando for sure wants to see. Uh, I mean, he was sitting here talking about Lincoln Riley being soft all season, and that's the reason the team was soft. Brent Venables is not soft. Brent Venables is tough, and I think Oklahoma's going to be tough. I think it's a big-time hire. I think we're going to have to see success from him pretty early on so he can start getting those big-time recruits in. I'm really worried about Oklahoma for next year because of the transfers they're going to have from Lincoln Riley leaving. And because of the decommits and flips to U, uh, USC from Lincoln leaving as well. Um, if Brent Vittables can get on the recruiting trail, get some guys in there and start to prepare for next season, I think you could see them not miss a beat. See, there are a group of people out there, and I don't know where they've gotten this mantra or mindset. And I do know that Jeff Levy and Arch Manning have a very good relationship. But there's a group of people out there that are saying that the entire reason that Jeff Levy is leaving Ole Miss and going to Oklahoma, one, it's his alma mater, and then two, uh, Brent Venables pretty much confirmed to him that he's going to be the highest paid offensive coordinator in college football. Uh, But there's a real belief from some people that because of the relationship that Levy has with Arch that it might draw him to Norman, Oklahoma. Personally, I don't see that happening. I think Arch already has in his mind where he's probably going to go. He's just going to announce it come March. But I don't know. I wanted to gauge your thoughts on that. No, no chance. I don't see that happening. I see see where the connection is there uh, with Jeff Levy. But I think if Arch Manning goes to Ole Miss, it's not going to be – it's not because of Jeff Levy. Like when Jeff Levy was there. It's because of Lane Kiffin, right. and it's because of his ties uh, due to his grandfather, Archie Manning, playing there, and, of course, uh, Eli Manning playing there as well. So, 
And his dad his dad played there until he got injured. That's right. And his dad played there as well. Cooper. Cooper's his dad, right? Cooper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cooper's his dad. So so there there's there's a lot of familial ties there. And and I think that that would be the big piece. They were saying, you know, that oh well, he's probably not going to go to Ole Miss because, or he it, he was going to go to Ole Miss because he had built a relationship with Levy. But I think that Kiffin's probably the one that's kind of controlled that a lot more. I know Levy did go to a basketball game his or whatever a couple weeks ago. But enough recruiting. Uh, the other hire that you mentioned uh, that we that we need to talk about is Mario Cristobal. And look, I've got this in my cut one off segment, but Miami's handling the, of this entire situation was horrendous. But for the first time since I would say really the Mark Rick tire at, at Miami, I feel like the Miami administration is aligned and actually has a plan to make football good. They look like they've got some donors lined up. They're trying to get a stadium built in Coral Gables, like right there next to the to the school, instead of being forty five minutes away. They also were hiring the Clemson athletic director, which is a huge, huge get for them because he's obviously had some success in in building some substantial programs. And, and Clemson really wasn't – there wasn't a lot to build upon like there is at Miami. And then hiring Mar- Mario Cristobal, you saw Brian Kelly last week with the fake country accent in in Louisiana – and it was like, me and my family are happy to be here. And he sounded like Forrest Gump because he's from Massachusetts. Mario Cristobal, in his press conference today when he was introduced, started speaking Spanish with the media. And it was like legit Spanish. He fits in with that culture in Miami. He played at Miami. He knows what it means to be a part of the U. I'm not going to declare the U back completely because... I'm going to say this. I think Mario Cristobal is the best hire that Miami could have gotten to get them back to, like in the direction they want to go. But I also watched Mario Cristobal's Oregon team, and maybe it's because this stuff was in the works. They got absolutely steamrolled by Utah in the regular season. And then they looked like a team that had never touched a football field before last week in the Pac-12 championship in a game that I picked them to come back and win, actually. And a lot of people did because they were like, yeah, and Oregon was favored in. And Oregon got smoked. They looked sloppy. They didn't look well coached. And maybe it was because of this, but I'm also wanting to pump the brakes on Mario Cristobal as a really good head coach. I mean, he is a good coach, but is he that elite level coach that we've all pegged him to be already? I know he's a really good recruiter, top-notch recruiter, Oregon's been in the top 10 two out of the past four years, top 15 two out of the past four years. So he's a good recruiter. But is he going to be able to have that U success? See, Matt, I don't think he has to be a good coach. I think he just has to be who he is. And this is why I think, and take notes on this, because I have a knack for throwing out some random predictions that end up coming true. Mario Cristobal is going to win a national championship in Miami. And I'll tell you a couple reasons why. Number one, I think he is a top three recruiter in the country. I think he's the third best recruiting head coach. Second or third to Nick Saban and Kirby Smart. I think they're the first two. You could say fourth behind Ryan Day, 
But you got to think, Ohio State kind of recruits for itself. Oregon does not recruit for itself. You recruit for you recruit for Oregon. Besides the jerseys, but I mean, whatever. Who cares how your jerseys are if you're not winning football games? In Miami, he's in a hotbed for recruiting. All he has to do is show that Miami can compete with the big dogs, or at least not be the atrocious disaster they've been the past couple years. And he'll have people knocking on his door to play there. He's a Miami guy. The last time Miami was good at football was because they got this mindset of, like, Miami's coming. All, Miami boys stay home. Everybody stay home. Let's bring the U back. Let's let's win some national championships. And Mario Cristobal is the perfect person to have that happen again. There's not a better guy to step into Miami, Florida, and coach that university. Plus, to mention the fact that it sounds like Joe Brady's going to be his offensive coordinator. And the last time we saw Joe Brady in college football, he was coaching what it was, in my opinion, the greatest offense to ever touch a college football field at LSU when he won the national championship. I think what it comes down to is hiring the right guy on defense. If he can find a defense coordinator, Manny Diaz would have been the perfect hire, but Manny Diaz was not going to stay at Miami uh, for obvious reasons. The way that they treated him was just absolutely absurd. Uh, but if he could find a good guy to come and coach their defense, a guy that can recruit really well, because Joe Brady's not going to be recruiting much, and uh, a guy that can make them a lead on defense, because they're going to get the guys. You just got to have the right guy to coach them. Mario Cristobal is not a defensive guy. He's got to have those those right minds over there. Mario Cristobal is a culture guy, and he's a recruiter. Kind of like how Ed O was without all the letting people get away with stuff they shouldn't be letting people get away with. And we saw what happened with Ed O at LSU when he got that culture right and he got the players right. So I think Chris yeah. Ball, put it put it on your list. Chris Ball's winning the natty. I, I I mean I could see it. I'm not I'm not completely discounting Mario Cristobal, but I also know what I've seen and and he's lost games that he shouldn't have lost before. His teams have. And and like you know, take Alabama out of the out of the picture for Georgia, and Kirby doesn't lose a lot of games that he shouldn't, if if any. I mean, he might lose like even the Florida game last year. He lost it, but he did. He doesn't. Kirby doesn't lose games that he shouldn't lose. Message boards are cancer, by the way, because there was my buddy sent me a pic, a screenshot. Somebody said fire Kirby after the game on Saturday. Oh, I was like, goodness. good grief. Kirby Smart is is a top five head coach in my opinion, and, and he doesn't lose games that he's not supposed to lose. Nick Saban, his teams don't lose games that they're that they're not supposed to at least be in, in, in close. I mean, the Texas A&M game this year is an outlier. There was a a over one hundred game streak against unranked opponents that Alabama had won consecutively. Mario Cristobal lost a game to Stanford that he shouldn't have lost. So, and, and I'm not, it's not always a knock necessarily on him, but it's just something that I've been thinking about because we always like to crown like this guy is a great head coach or this guy. And, and what Mario Cristobal did at Oregon is really good. But I also think some of that has to go back to Chip Kelly. I mean, Chip Kelly really built that Oregon program and it helped that Phil Knight and Nike pretty much did their whole marketing thing with it. And, I think it'll be interesting to see where Oregon goes now. 
because in my opinion, they've kind of solidified themselves as a top 15 to 20 program in the country as, as far as being consistently a top recruiting team. And, and they've got the talent there that someone, the right guy could come in and win. I went back and looked from 2019 all the way through 2022. The worst recruiting class that Oregon had, and obviously this was with Mario Cristobal, was 11. They had a 6, a 9, a 7, and 11. And that's with, obviously that's with Mario Cristobal, but they also, with, with NIL deals being the way that they are, Nike is going to be able to, and I think they've already signed a contract with Oregon to pay up a little bit of money. So Oregon, this to me is a critical hire for them because this is either going to keep their program afloat and, and then elevate it, or it's going to be a downward slope where USC kind of reigns supreme and takes back over in the Pac-12, and it's USC and everybody else. Yeah, which is what I think is going to happen. But let's go ahead and jump into the mailbag. Uh, we spent a lot of time on talking about other stuff going on. Our first question is from at Kenneth Carletta. His question is, what is Georgia's path to a championship victory? Is it possible to win with Stetson at QB? Their path to a victory is beating Michigan and then beating the winner of the Alabama-Cincinnati game. Mm, nice. Most likely being Alabama. Good insight. Thanks. <laughs> um, but if, if that's, my, that's, my, that's my Lando answer for the week. But um, if, if you want my honest opinion, one, yes. Uh, Georgia is going to have to be more effective at using the run to open the pass. And they're going to have to do that whether it's with JT or with Stetson at quarterback. I think they absolutely can win with Stetson at quarterback. They've shown that year all year long. Uh, but when they play an elite team like Alabama, talent-wise, and it becomes a, a iffy matchup, they really have to hone in on the run game. And I think that Kirby went away from the run, or maybe Todd Munkin, whoever it was, calling plays. They went away from the run game too early. <clears throat> the way that Georgia is going to have to win a game against this Alabama offense is by shortening the clock, keeping the ball out of Bryce Young's hands, and controlling field position, like what they were doing early in the game. Get off the field on third downs. That's what Georgia's going to have to do. Um do I think they do it this year? I still think there's a really good chance that they do, yeah. And I think that Stetson Bennett could absolutely be the starting quarterback. He, I honestly think Kirby's going to make a change, though, just to see. I don't think Kirby will make a change unless Stetson comes out. If, say, you know, whether it's Michigan or Alabama, comes out and show, gives him a reason to think that he should not be the guy out there. I think of that Alabama game before he didn't really show that besides the two interceptions and those came so late in the game it was like all right it's kind of too late to pull him but to me is it possible to win with Stetson at quarterback I still think it is possible to win with Stetson at quarterback during the game on Saturday I was I was not I did not agree with what I just said I thought JT should have been in the game and I thought JT should have been the quarterback the rest of the season I kind of have gone back on that the more I've sat through and watched the game and actually paid attention to it and not just look at my phone and see stats and whatnot. Um, 
So I think Georgia can win with Stetson. I think Georgia's path to victory is going to have to go through Alabama. Um, I like Georgia's matchup with Michigan. I'm worried about it. I think Michigan's a good football team, but I don't think they had the explosive passing game that's going to open up their run game as much as Alabama did against Georgia. And I think what Georgia has to do to beat Alabama this season is pretty simple. It's take away Jameson Williams. Without John Mechie there, if you take away Jameson Williams from that passing game and continue to do what you've done against the run game the entire season, their offense is going to stifle a little bit. As good as Bryce Young is, there's not a receiver on that football team that scares me besides Jameson Williams right now. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's easier said than done because Jameson Williams is an absolute superstar. Bryce Young is also a superstar. I think Bryce Young, in a in his first season for Alabama, is the best quarterback I've ever seen play at the University of Alabama, and that's saying a lot considering how good Tua has was for Alabama and how good Mac Jones was for Alabama. But Bryce Young's just something different. Um, I personally, I just can't see Georgia actually beating Alabama. I mean, I said that earlier. In the episode, I'm kind of, you know, kind of depressed about it, not going to lie. But, I mean, it's it's almost like a mental hurdle that Kirby just can't get over right now. And uh, But I think if there's a way for it to happen, that's the way it's got to be. you got to take out James Williams. And on to our next question. This is from Chad S. underscore 529. His question is, which team has the best story this season? Ooh, Baylor has a really cool story. They won two games last year, and Dave Aranda did a complete culture flip of that program in a year to turn them into the Big 12 champs. They have a really cool story. Um, Pitt has a pretty cool story, even though I think the ACC is terrible, um, and the fact that they won the ACC championship this year and didn't have to play, I, I don't know, I, I, it just... They played Wake Forest in an ACC championship, and that just was the most unexciting matchup. Uh, obviously, I love the way that Alabama's story has turned out because all season the narrative was it's a down year, it's a down year, it's a down year. 12-1 and one SEC champs in a down year going into the playoff as the number one seed, I'll take that. Um, so that's been a cool story too. And then Ole Miss, first ever 10-win season. Got to give some love to the uh, – to the almost alma mater, it's uh, it, uh, the first ever 10-win regular season. So all very cool stories. Um, th- those would be my my top ones. Yeah, there's a lot of teams that have had good stories too. UTSA is another team that was – they had a really good year. They went undefeated for the entire season up until their conference championship game this past weekend. Um, Iowa had a really good year even with the losses to Purdue and uh, – to who else they lose to? Can't remember who that team was. Oh, to Wisconsin, um, and then of course the blowout loss to Michigan. To me, I think the two best stories this year are number one Cincinnati. Cincinnati came first group of five team to make the playoff, even after an undefeated season last year. It's still surprising to see what they did. They beat Notre Dame, who also had a good story coming into what I thought was going to be a down year for Notre Dame, uh, and then they had their coach leave, and then they had their up-and-coming defensive coordinator took over for them and keep all their recruits and keep their recruit- their uh, coaching staff going into the bowl games. So uh, that's another great story as well. I think the number one best story this season is Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. Last year, absolutely terrible. I think they only won five or six games last season, maybe even four. I mean, they were terrible coming off the pandemic. 
year before that, they really didn't have a great year either. The only good year they've had under Jim Harbaugh was 2016 when they lost to Ohio State on that fourth down play um, from JT Barrett. That was a little controversial. Jim Harbaugh comes into the season. Everyone thinks he's going to get fired before the year. They give him a, a, what was it, one or two year extension. Maybe it was a 10 year extension. I don't even remember. But they lowered his salary. They put in a couple contingencies there where if he didn't reach a certain level this season, he wasn't going to coach again next year. They were going to have to let him go. He was going to lose money. And he turns around and makes a college football playoff. He beats Ohio State. He wins the Big Ten for the first time. He does everything that he said he was going to do at Michigan the year that the year after everybody wanted him fired. And honestly, to me, I think this is a great thing for college football as well because it shows you don't have to be Nick Saban. You don't have to be Kirby Smart. Come in in year two and make a national championship or win a national championship or be Nick Saban win like every single national championship. Keep the guys you got. If you got a good coach, keep the guys you got. Let them do what they do. They might surprise you here and there. Good for Jim Harbaugh. Not a huge Michigan fan, but I'm happy for the guy because he's done a great job there. Uh, he's won a lot of games and finally got his title. See, I remember at the beginning of this year, just to iterate something, because Jim Harbaugh has a really cool story, and I didn't even think about that. Um, but this, I said this at the beginning of the year, word of caution, 9-3 and three and 10-2 and two every year isn't that bad because, a.k.a., look at Nebraska. Look at what Nebraska's gone through. They were unhappy with Bo Pelini because they were winning eight or nine games a year. And I said, Michigan fans, be careful what you wish for. You keep saying you want to be nationally relevant and you want to get rid of Harbaugh. Harbaugh made Stanford nationally relevant again. He went to a Super Bowl in his first year in the NFL with Colin Kaepernick. Like, here we go. Let let the man coach. So, yes, I got to give you a nod on that. Jim Harbaugh is a very cool story. Well, look at it, too. Look at Steve Sarkeesian in Texas. I mean, Tom Herman was winning eight games a season at Texas. They fire him. And they bring in Steve Sarkeesian, who a lot of people thought was a good hire. I've been very vocal on thinking that it was a terrible hire. And what they what were they five and seven this season? Five and seven. I mean, they were awful, and they have all these off seasons or all these off the field storylines going on, talking about some weird stuff going on with the program, like the monkey weird thing. I don't know what the heck's going on. with Pole assassin and her monkey. Yeah, what a stripper. So glad thing. they're not in Tuscaloosa whatever, anymore. Whatever. Weird stuff going on. Um. Texas, I mean, Auburn, look at last season. Auburn got rid of Gus Malzahn. Gus Malzahn has beaten Alabama multiple times in Jordan-Hare. Gus Malzahn pretty much had them at 9-3, and 8-4 and four pretty much every single season. They went 6-6 six and six this year. Obviously, they had a uh, lost a quarterback with Bo Nix. They had a pretty good season up until that point, in my opinion. But, I mean, it, they're just, to me, if you got a guy that's winning you 9 to to 10 games a year or eight games or even seven games here and there, unless you have a guy that is just next level for you, there's no reason to fire somebody. So good on Jim Harbaugh. Hopefully that changes the way people think about coaching staffs a little bit. On to our next question. This one's from at Nathan Kissler. And his question is new transfer portal rules are really starting to make an impact. Who will benefit the most next season? I think Lincoln Riley still is going to be a guy that can benefit a lot from this uh, because the, the the transfer portal now, I said this last week too, it used to be you didn't evaluate a new coach's program until after his third recruiting cycle, and then you sat down and you said, all right, 
you've had three recruiting cycles now. These guys that are starters are definitely your players. How are you developing them? Where were you ranking? The, where, where, what, was the, what were those recruiting classes ranked? And now how have they turned out? What have you developed? Now with the transfer portal, you can go in and you can almost get an immediate quick fix. And I used Ole Miss as the example. I think Lincoln Riley is going to be able to do that effectively at USC because there's already a little bit of talent at USC. They don't need a ton of help in order to be next level good. So I think that he's going to be able to take advantage of the transfer portal and get the pieces that he wants in there to run his offense. Like if Caleb Williams decides that he wants to leave Oklahoma and go to USC, which I have heard is still a very high possibility, he can do that. And I think that would make USC an immediate favorite in the Pac-12. So that, to me, is the the one place that can be quick fix the easiest because the talent's there. They just need the coaching and a couple of pieces and, a cu- and key positions like quarterback. I agree with you, Matt, but I think a lot of USC's success is going to come from recruiting. Even this season, just because they're getting so many recruits from Oklahoma to flip to USC. I think one team specifically that's going to benefit a lot from the transfer portal this offseason is going to be Ole Miss. Ole Miss has shown that they can do a lot with transfer guys. They've shown that they can develop players. But Ole Miss is not a dominant recruiting school, and I don't think they're ever going to be. I think, obviously, with Hugh Freeze, they had that number one class that one season. They had a couple pretty good recruiting classes. Um, Obviously, there was some other stuff going on there that kind of helped out with that. But... They did. I don't think Lane Kiffin's ever going to get Ole Miss to that spot. I think he's going to keep them at best, maybe closer to the top 10, top 20 range. Even there, I think is kind of tough for Ole Miss. But Ole Miss is a school I could see going out and saying, hey, a guy like Dylan Gabriel from UCF, we have a really potent passing offense. You'd be perfect for it. Come work with one of the best offensive minds in college football and party in Oxford and hang out in Oxford. Oxford is a great place. I got to go. It was awesome. So I think Lane Kiffin has done a really good job with the transfer portal since he's been there. And I think he's going to take advantage of the mass, mass, mass amounts of people who have entered the portal this off season. Cause it's going to be a wild, wild West cowboy movie watching these people pick where they're going to go. And on to our last question. This is from at coach Kissler. His question is, favorite non-playoff bowl matchup? Personally, for me, it's got to be, well, I'm going to say two. One is my unbiased, and it is the Rose Bowl. I love that matchup with Ohio State and Utah. That feels like it's going to be such a fun it's such a fun matchup. Utah's never been to the Rose Bowl before, so they're going to be chomping at the bit to get there. And they play really physical, fun defense. Uh, I, I really, really am excited to see what how their defense matches up against Ohio State, and if they are going to be able to do anything offensively against Ohio State. Like that, that, that just is a fun matchup to me. And then the biased one is obviously the Sugar Bowl. Uh, Fingers crossed I'm going to get an opportunity to go. Uh, Just trying to iron out the details because of it being on New Year's Day and flights, hotels, all that stuff. But uh, we were actually discussing that beforehand. So uh, I think, and and I also think that the Ole Miss-Baylor game is a really good matchup between two completely different personalities. You have Lane Kiffin, who's like really eccentric, offensive-minded, out like has the Twitter that he shows and is really emotional on the sidelines. And then you, on the other hand with Baylor, 
We have Dave Aranda, who when they won the Big 12 championship this past weekend on a goal line stand, I don't know if y'all saw the video, but there's he's literally standing on the sidelines as they won, completely straight-faced, no emotion whatsoever. Everybody's going nuts around him, and he's just kind of standing there, like looking around like, yep, that's exactly what we were supposed to do, and just very stoic, defensive-minded guy. So I think that could be a fun matchup to watch. So I, I put it in a, in a couple different categories. Uh, for my New Year's Six game, I'm most excited about, I actually went with Utah, Ohio State. And the reason I did is because Utah is probably the hottest team in the country right now. Those guys have been playing at a really, really good rate. They're, they're playing awesome. Ohio State was playing great coming into that Michigan game the last time we saw them. They took a really disappointing loss. It'll be really interesting to see if Ohio State has guys show up for that game. They got a lot of really young players, especially on defense. Um, if they don't have some of those receivers like Jackson Smith and Jigba, uh, Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave, if those, if some of those guys decide they're not going to play and sit out for the bowl game, I think Utah is going to have a really good shot to win this, which would be really cool for Kyle, uh, Kyle Whittingham too because he's a great coach. be cool to see him win a Rose Bowl. Uh, for my non-New Year's Six games, I got two of them. Oregon-Oklahoma, I think it's going to be a really good game. Very kind of odd matchup, good-looking color matchup. Uh, I think it's two teams that were very disappointed in the way they finished their seasons this year. Oklahoma, assuming they don't have all their players transfer and quit on the team before they get to that point, which I really don't think they will now that they've gotten Brent Venables. Um Caleb Williams, I think he has a lot better chance of staying now that he's got Venables, especially if Levy comes over with them too. Uh, Oregon, they are probably not going to have Kayvon Thibodeau play. It'd be really interesting to see how they do against Oklahoma without that. Uh, but I still think it's going to be a good game. And UCF, Florida, like what a great matchup. I'm glad they threw that together. That's a game I've been wanting to see for a while. Obviously, it doesn't hold the same weight it would have held these last couple seasons when UCF had Hypo and was doing really well and when Florida was playing really well under Dan Mullen. Um, but it's still that in-state kind of rivalry. UCF the past couple of years has been like, we're a better program than Florida. Uh, we won a national championship, whatever, all that stuff. It'd be cool to see that matchup, even with all the injuries to UCF, with all the people leaving Florida, Dan Mullen getting fired, whatnot. Um, and then I will say my least favorite matchup, I was actually kind of annoyed to see this too, was UAB BYU. Like what in the world is that matchup? Why is BYU ranked 13 and playing in the independence bowl against UAB? If BYU is really this good of a football team where they have them ranked, BYU should be up in some of those new year's level type of bowl games. I don't know why they're playing UAB. They're only a seven point favorite too. I'll tell you what. I'm going to hammer the crap out of that line. BYU is going to annihilate UAB. I don't even think UAB is a fat football team, but BYU is a top 25 team, and they deserve to play a top 25 team. I I thought that a good matchup for BYU, if they were going to do something like that, like would have been at least Mississippi State and the Liberty Bowl. Like yeah. I thought that that would have been a pretty decent matchup. Yeah, something like that or like, I don't know, like, in that same like date range is like that Oklahoma Oregon game, or even like Iowa State, or like just someone, someone that's that has some kind of big name brand to it, not UAB. Like to me, that give them a Power Five terrible. game. 
yeah, a Power Five game. That'd yeah, that's what they, I'm saying. They, or like, yeah, put them up against an SEC team and see what they can do. I mean, they, the last couple of years, I mean, they, they were ten and two this year. They went undefeated last year until they played Coastal. Like, they just, I don't know. I mean, I don't think they deserve Tennessee. T- Tennessee was a good team this year. I mean, yeah, we're Arkansas. Yeah, like either one of those matchups would have been a lot of fun to watch. It would have been cool to see what BYU could have done against a team of that caliber. But no, they're just going to steamroll UAB, and that'll be fun. Whatever. <laughs> But we'll go ahead and move on to our pour one out, cut them off segment. Matt, we all know you're pouring out for us. So just go ahead and say it. So I am pouring one out for Bama doing Bama things. It was a beautiful thing. Bryce Young pretty much locked up his Heisman Trophy. So not only is Bama back-to-back SEC champs going to have back-to-back Heisman winners, which I would just like to point out the fact, and while I have this moment, to say that Alabama didn't have a Heisman Trophy winner until 2009, and this will be our fourth in school history. Zero from the dawn of time in like 1800 or whatever the year that, that, that Alabama football started, I guess 1898. So from 1898 all the way until 2008, zero. From 2009 to 2021, four. It's a beautiful thing. I love to see it. Wit, sorry, buddy. Uh, it's at your expense this time, especially. But uh, Bryce Young balled out. Uh, and this week I am cutting off Miami uh, for the abysmal way that they handled the Manny Diaz situation. If you were following along, they basically offered Cristobal the job before they had even fired Manny Diaz, and they said they they it was public, if you don't take it, then we're going to just keep Manny Diaz. So Manny Diaz was sitting there like, really? Like, if you're going to let go of someone, just fire him. If you think that someone can do better, let the current guy go. Don't say, we'll only fire you if this one guy accepts it. That was a terrible... Terrible PR thing for Miami. I hope Manny Diaz pooped in all of their offices and set it all on fire whenever he was walking out and maybe even left a big old pile on the aid on the president or chancellor or whatever they call it at Miami's car. Like that, that just terrible handling of that situation. And uh yeah, so we'll see. I'm, 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 I was going to cut off the Heisman situation because I still feel like Will Anderson should be in there over Aiden Hutchinson, but I will I will hold off on, on that rant for another day. Wit. Well, first off, let me say I totally agree with you there. I think, I, I think Hutchinson should be in the Heisman conversation. He should be there, but it makes no sense that Will Anderson is not in over Will Hutchinson, or, uh, Hutchinson. But whatever. We won't talk about it. I'm done talking about Bama today. I'm pouring one out for... Oklahoma, and you can say they didn't handle the whole Lincoln Riley thing well. I don't know if you guys have been on Twitter, or at least on the Around the Keg Twitter, because I follow a lot of uh, Oklahoma sites as well. Dude, they have exploded. I mean, they are they are furious. They are treating this whole Lincoln Riley leaving like LeBron just left for the Miami Heat. Like people are burning down buildings. Uh, people are getting shot. Uh, you got Bob Stoops apparently throwing Lincoln Riley's uh, belongings off the roof of the Oklahoma Athletic Building. An Oklahoma senator is renaming the most desolate highway in the state of Alabama the Lincoln Riley Highway. Like, like I don't, I don't know what is going on. To me, I don't like. I personally would not handle it this way. 
But good on Oklahoma for saying we're a program that deserves better than somebody leaving for what I would consider is a lateral move to USC. Pretty much just to run away from the SEC uh, since Oklahoma will be joining the SEC with Texas here in the next couple of years. So pouring one out for Oklahoma, Oklahoma fans, Oklahoma students, uh, Oklahoma alumni, plus the fact that they got Brent Venables, who I think is going to end up being a better fit for them than Lincoln Riley in the SEC anyway. So pouring one out for Oklahoma, and I am cutting off stubborn Kirby Smart. Because once again, Kirby Smart has come in to playing Alabama with a non-elite quarterback. And even though Stetson is not that bad, Stetson's been way better than everybody thought he was going to be coming into the season. He was better than he's much better than he was in 2020. Stetson, like Jake Fromm, is not elite. He's not the guy to lead Georgia to a national championship. He still has an opportunity to. He might have another shot at Alabama if we, if uh, Georgia can get past Michigan. But once again, no five-star quarterback for Kirby. No dynamic passer. No elite offense. Same old Kirby Smart, same thing we see every year. Love Kirby. Don't think we should fire him. Don't think we should ever fire Kirby until he decides he wants to leave, which some Georgia fans might disagree with me on that. But if you do, then you're a moron. But cutting you off, Kirby. Hope you can turn things around. Keys, you probably went out for. I'm going to start with my cutoff. So I'm going to keep it short because we've been talking about it a little bit, and Matt kind of brought it up as well. I'm cutting off the QB award, the Heisman Trophy. I'm not saying there's not a quarterback that could win it this year. I know, obviously, Bryce Young is talented and probably deserving. Uh, I just There needs to be a more objective system for determining the best all-around player by position because really all you get to see is just the cameras focused on the quarterback all game. I, Witt says this a lot. The people in these committees that are selecting the playoff committee, selecting the Heisman, they must not even watch football half the time because or they don't really analyze as much as they should. Um. Will Anderson, talked about that a second ago, wasn't even considered. Jordan Davis wasn't considered early. I understand he needed to have a big impact against Alabama, and he really kind of didn't have that impact um, towards the very end of the season that he was having. And Kenneth Walker kind of really had, like, what, one bad game, and he's kind of out of it. So, you know, some of these other players um, that I thought really should be considered in there, there's there's a lot of quarterbacks. Obviously, Kenny Pickett's really good as well. That fake slide was disgusting. Um, but I'm cutting off the quarterback award, need a more objective system there. And I'm going to give us our little daily dose of Georgia Southern. We're all Eagles here on this podcast. So we haven't talked about Georgia Southern at all this week because there's no game and there's going to be no bowl whenever bowl season comes up. But Georgia Southern has been making some pretty good moves in terms of hiring. Uh, so next season should be pretty interesting. Um, some of the hires, um, obviously we have Clay Helton, head coach from USC, steal of a hire. 800K contract over three years. It's a steal. Um, Ryan Applin uh, from Arkansas State. He's hired as the passing game coordinator. Ephraim Reed from Michigan State. He was the running backs coach, and he's going to be the running back coach at Georgia Southern. There's a guy that he just coached that we just talked about, Kenneth Walker. Um, Kevin Whitley uh, was the interim head coach for Georgia Southern, and he's going to be the assistant head coach and cornerbacks coach. Corner, not quarter. Uh, Brian Ellis from Western Kentucky. He's going to be the offensive coordinator. And he actually, I didn't know this stat until I saw it this week. Western Kentucky had the second most efficient offense with 43.1 points per game this season. And Georgia Southern currently scores 20 and a quarter points per game. So that's going to be 
hopefully a big impact in the offense, and maybe we'll see a big pickup in the pass game. Um, and then kind of a little higher in there, Ryan Smith. And then Ryan Smith, a little higher there, who was the Auburn director of player personnel, and now he's going to be the GM for Georgia Southern. So decent, um, decent amount of hires this week, and I think it's kind of a decent team that they've kind of constructed. So hopefully next year for Georgia Southern will be a little better, and then in the coming years that will develop a, a team that's worth watching again as as yeah, Eagles a couple ourselves. rumors saying that JT Daniels might be transferring to Georgia Southern, so maybe we get a quick turnaround next year. That would be awesome. The only way I could ever see that happening is if you just have too busy of a quarterback room and Clay Helton had just a phenomenal relationship with JT Daniels because there's yeah, I just no don't chance. see how or that if, would or happen. if Blue Room take it. if Blue Room changes happen, their name to but to the Daniels right. room. And and that one still don't even think it would happen. Or Daniels, uh, <laughs> Daniels McGee. But uh, well, we got no picks for this week. There's only one game. It's Army Navy. Matt, who are you picking for this game? I've I've always been kind of impartial on this game, just because I've got family that's been in the Navy. I've got family that's been in the Army. So in this one, I've got to go with. I've got three former students of mine that are all at the military academy in West Point. So go Army, beat Navy. Uh, I'm I'm rolling with the Knights this week. Uh, so that that's that that's my pick. Go Army, beat Navy. Yeah, I'm picking Army because Army has been a better team than Navy this year. And although this is a really good rivalry game, I feel like a lot of times the the better team ends up winning in the end. There's not a ton of upsets. You never know. I mean, Navy really hasn't been good the past couple of years. So I don't expect anything out of them. But so I'm going to take Army. Uh, also, we're going to throw in a couple uh, college football playoffs, semifinal, and national championship picks. Matt, who's winning the Orange Bowl? Who's winning the Cotton Bowl? Who's winning the Natty? Alabama's winning the Cotton Bowl. Georgia's winning the Orange Bowl. Alabama's going to win the Natty. Cincinnati, Michigan, Cincinnati wins. Turns turns the college football world around. It would be such a such 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 a twenty twenty one thing to see Cincinnati it win the would. Natty. I would be so hurt and yet so like at the same time like pleased by seeing Purse Cincinnati actually pull the ultimate like <laughs> middle finger to everyone who oh said gosh. they didn't deserve to be there. If you're looking on paper, it's Alabama Georgia in my opinion, and I don't see Georgia beating Alabama ever in the history of mankind. No, so. no, no, no. I I heard ver- verbatim Double digit win last no, week. No, yeah, you might have heard that somewhere, but I was drunk and I'm still drunk. So, but the uh, <laughs> so that would be my pick. I think this is going to be my official prediction. I think that's too easy though. 2021 is not a season Alabama is going to win the national championship. So I think Michigan knocks off Georgia. Georgia overlooks Michigan, trying to get to Alabama, and gets gets pushed around and beat in Miami, and Alabama beats the snot out of Cincinnati. And uh, I think Michigan upsets Alabama in the national championship. That's my official pick because I would be. It's just not. It's this is not a season Alabama's going to win a national championship. That's See, that, that was my homer pick, but Georgia's not beating them. That was kind of my homer pick: Alabama, Georgia, Alabama. I honestly, if if there is an Alabama Georgia rematch, I would be very very weary of picking Alabama in reality because it's tough to beat a team twice a real a good team twice and Georgia's a really good team I wouldn't want to see that and 
like you said, it's 2021, and this has been silly season this year. What better of a year for it to be this weird and Georgia finally break their curse? I, I could absolutely see Georgia pulling this thing off. and Or I could it. also see in the year of 2021, Cincinnati coming and playing out of their minds, Alabama having some god-awful, heinous thing happen in the first – like if Bryce Young – Something happens to him in the semifinal, and in Cincinnati somehow pulls it off. Georgia wins, and Georgia beats Cincinnati. It, it. I don't really think that Alabama is going to lose to Cincinnati. I think it would take a lot of external factors happening. I mean, uh, Cincinnati is going to beat Alabama, but God, it, oh, keys. Any predictions? I think it's going to be Alabama. Honestly, it just uh, the way yeah. that Georgia fell apart, it really showed their weakness this year. Finally, because we've been talking about all year, the only team who's been consistent every game has been Georgia, and they were not consistent in that game at all. Um, really just kind of fell apart to the, the giant that is Alabama. I think my prediction is going to be that the Braves won the World Series in 2021. <laughs> I think that one will come true. So That's yeah. right. And I'm, I'm going to be watching every single football game the rest of the season with the Braves World Series champion sweatshirt on. So go Braves, chop on. Real quick before we real quick before we get out of here, um, since we don't have very many games to pick this week, uh, without any explanation, you don't have to explain yourself at all. Who do you want to win the Heisman? Like, who do you think deserves it? And then who do you think will win it, whether or not they deserve it or not? Who do I think deserves the Heisman? I think Will Anderson deserves the Heisman. I know for a fact Bryce Young will win the Heisman. I think and I'm gonna say this too, just kind of throw this in here as well. I think Kenneth Walker should be there. I don't think Kenny Pickett or CJ Stroud. I understand him being there. I, also, I don't really think he should be there either. I think it should be Aiden Hutchinson, Will Anderson, Bryce Young, and uh, who was it there? Uh, and uh, Kenneth Walker. I think Kenneth Walker absolutely deserves to be there. Um, I think they should take more than four people, also, but. The fact that they only took four people, those are the four I would pick. Kenny Pickett and C.J. Stroud, they're deserving of being in New York. I, I'm okay with that, but I think there are players that are more deserving than they are. Will Anderson has a, had a better year than any defensive player I've ever seen in college football. He's probably the best defensive player to ever play for Nick Saban, which is unbelievable. So I absolutely, if I were choosing who wins the Heisman, it would be Will Anderson from Alabama. Same. Will Anderson would be my would be my vote. Bryce Young will win it. My four would be Bryce Young, Kenny Pickett, Kenneth Walker, Matt Corral. But I feel like Matt Corral was kind of overlooked because his stats didn't really line up. But if you look at what he actually did, he played without his top three receivers against Auburn and single-handedly kept that game semi-close. And he actually almost beat he, he single-handedly is a reason that Ole Miss beat Tennessee. So he carried Ole Miss to a 10-win season. I don't think that he was recognized enough. So if there's only four, I guess it would be Bryce. My, my, my four would be Will Anderson, Bryce Young, Matt Corral, Kenneth Walker. and then But Bryce Young is going to win it. Well, that's our show. Thank you guys for listening. As always, we appreciate it. Before you guys log off today, please don't forget to drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, drop a follow on Spotify, and give us a follow on our social media on Instagram at AroundTheKeg and on Twitter at AroundTheKegPod. Send us any questions or topics you want us to discuss on the show, and we'll be happy to include as much as we can. Have a great week. See y'all.